It's nice to be here one more time to be able to share a little bit from the Word of God with you. And uh, looking forward to this weekend, uh, hearing the Word of God taught to us as well. And uh, just continue to pray for Joyce as she heads down to Florida, hopefully this weekend, to say goodbye to her dad. And so we just pray that you keep her in your prayers as she goes, that all things will work together for the glory of our, of our Lord. Back to James, this time chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in James chapter 2, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Actually, we'll probably read through till uh, verse 13. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and in fine apparel, and there should come also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convinced... i got new glasses, and every time they slide down a little bit, everything blurs on the page. You have to bear with me as I'm trying to keep pushing them up and the words keep blurring on me as I'm going along and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you'll become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty... For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge once again before you the responsibility of handling your word. And we pray that your spirit would guide and direct our thinking this morning. That speaker and hearer alike would be moved by thy spirit to hear the things that are spoken, to listen, and to also speak those things which your Spirit wants spoken. And so, Father, we ask for thy guidance, we ask for thy direction. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Typically, and many of you who know me well will know this, but typically when I study a portion of the Word of God in preparation for a message such as this, I very rarely will go to a commentary. I very rarely will go to a commentary in order to get information and glean information uh, in the 
structuring of, of a message. I always go to a commentary when I'm finished. Because I always like to check my work. I always like to check and see if those scholars agreed with my conclusions. And it's always a rich reward when you've gone through all the hard work and you've gone through all your word studies and you've gone through all your studying of the Word and your meditation and you go into the commentaries and, and they agree with you. That's a reward. That's a blessing. When you go in sometimes and you've been struggling through a passage and you've come up with some conclusions and you read the commentary, the first one you pick up and it doesn't agree with you and you say, uh-oh. You read another one, it doesn't agree with you, uh-oh. You read the third one, uh-oh, I better go back and check my work again. This is really a very easy passage to study. But it's very complex in its application. So you can draw your conclusions fairly easily. The interpretation of this passage lies right on the surface, does it not? But it is important for us to not only interpret, but then to be able to apply those things which we learned. Well, when I was reading through a commentary this past week after I had finished all my work and all my notes were complete and I went into a commentary, I read this at the very end, his concluding remarks on this passage. And this is what Bill McDonald said in his concluding remarks on this section. He said, and I quote, Let us test ourselves then on this important subject of partiality. And then he asks a series of questions. Do we show more kindness to those of our own race than to those of other races? Are we more kindly disposed to the young than to the old? Are we more outgoing to good-looking people than to those who are plain or homely? Are we more anxious to befriend prominent people than those who are comparatively unknown? Do we avoid people with physical infirmities and seek the companionship of the strong and healthy? Do we favor the rich over the poor? Do we give the cold shoulder to foreigners, those who speak our language with a foreign accent? End of quote. Do we show partiality? And that expands to a greater list of individuals than are listed simply in the examples that are given to us by James. It expands beyond those things. And we all know that. We would all understand that. He gives us some examples here that are extremely important examples for us to grasp. But they give us a foundation on which we expand out to understand what is partiality and what is favoritism. And are we guilty? And are we guilty? Normally, I think in a group like this, normally in a group like this, I generally do not think of ourselves as being those who show partiality. I don't think we're a kind of group of people that's, that show partiality at all. I've been in this group for, for many, many years. I've known these people for many, many years. 
And we should point out, I think, and I think it's important at this juncture to do so, because the comments that follow need to be, need to be put underneath this category. I think we should point out that this is not referring to our circle of friends. It's not referring to those whose company we enjoy and maybe hang out with more than we hang out with others. It's not really referring to that. It's referring to how do we accept one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? And how do we accept others who come in the door into the fellowship of the Lord's people? How do we receive them when they come? And it goes beyond that even. It's not only, because I think it's a hard issue, that it does not only refer to those who come in the door and are met by the greeters out in the hall, which do a a very good job, but it refers to the heart that expands outside of these doors into people you meet as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we respond? The Word that is engrafted into us, as we studied last week, should be affecting This place in our lives. It should be affecting this place in our lives. As we have read the Word of God, as we have studied the Word of God, as we have seen the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and how it has affected and changed us, as we look into that mirror of the Word of God, and we're learning to obey the precepts, learning to obey the truths that are written therein, It should be changing this area of our lives as well. It should be covering this area of our life as well. The good God who gives good gifts, the good God that we read about and studied about last week, who gives good gifts and does not change, is a God who does not show Partiality. And we know that, don't we? You believe that, don't you? And aren't you happy that He doesn't show partiality? Aren't you happy that He just didn't say, just this select group of Jews will be saved, and I forget about those Gentiles? He did not show partiality and the Gospel went out to all who would believe. And I will stand one day and you who believe will stand one day with our brothers and sisters from around this world from every race and every creed and every denomination and everyone who truly has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will all stand together before the Lord one day in glory. Because He shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. He is a wonderful, good God. He is a sovereign God. And He is a good God that does not change. The issue of partiality. The issue of partiality must flow out of the context of what we read last week. A man is looking in the mirror. 
Some see their natural face. They hear. They might even listen carefully to what is being spoken. They may even hear the lesson. But they walk out of the room and they forget. And what does the Scripture teach us? Tell us right here in this passage in chapter 1. What does it teach us that he forgets? It doesn't merely say that he forgets his natural face. He sees his natural face in the mirror. He forgets what manner of man he was. That's the issue. What manner of man he was. When we look into the Word of God and we see the Word of God teaching us and reflecting to us what we ought to be and how we ought to live and we walk away from it and forget what kind of men we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and go out into the world as if nothing has changed, you're like that first man. You're like the first man. You go out. How often have I said in the, uh, last week, how often did I say, listen? Don't merely hear, listen. Oftentimes we'll leave this building and before you get out into the parking lot, before you get home, you have forgotten what was taught. And if someone was to ask you in the afternoon, how was the message today? Oh, it was really good. What was it about? I don't remember. It was about the Bible. It was about Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer. And even though we may have heard it, even though we may have listened, the difference takes place when it impacts you and changes you. Right? You may not remember the message. You may not remember all the words that were spoken. But if the principle, if the teaching, the core teaching struck your heart and it changes the way you think when you go into next week's work, then it is paid the dividend of what it was seeking to do. Then you become not like the man who is auditing the course, who's hearing it, but it changes nothing, who's not responsible for anything that he hears, you become like the second man who hears the Word, listens carefully, analyzes it, and allows it to change your heart and your life. And you have a dedication. You may not be faithful. You may not be completely able to, right from the get-go, to change some of those things that he's trying to change in your life, but you have a desire in your heart to see it changed. And you work toward that end with the help of the Spirit of God in your life. That's what God is wanting to do. And when you flow out of that chapter, and you flow naturally into this chapter, what he is saying is, one of those principles is not only caring for the orphans, not only caring for the widows, not only trying to keep your life unspotted from the things of the world. Those are principles as well that we could expand out, couldn't we? He's not merely talking about widows. He's not merely talking about orphans. He's talking about a changed life that cares for people, who looks out for people, and especially for those who can't look out for themselves. And it flows right into this section. Almost seamlessly, it flows into this section. And if we go away hearing the Word, listening to it, and not being changed, 
it's missed its point. It's missed its purpose. Or worse, we've become content with who we are. How many times have you heard even a brother or sister in Christ say this? This is who I am. Take it or leave it. Oh, my friend, I hope that's not the way we think. This is who I am. Lord, change me to be what you want me to be. Change me to be who you want me to be. Not force the world to accept me as I am, but change me that I might be used by you for his glory. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to change. Help us to be that which you want us to be. Now, you look at this context of this picture that he gives us in the beginning of chapter 2. This culturally, in the first century, would have been a normal, culturally accepted practice. It would have been accepted. It would be very similar and different, but similar in sense to what used to happen in this country in the South in the 17, late 17, 1800s when you had a church of white individuals and a black person would come in. The gasp of the crowd, people would walk up and leave because there was someone there that culturally was not accepted in that greeting, not accepted in that meeting. And that was culturally accepted. It was okay. It was okay to react that way. And you see how awful that is now, all these generations later. But here, in the time of the first century, it was culturally accepted that when a poor person came into the assembly of the meeting, of the of the of the believers a poor person didn't expect to be treated with any kind of respect he came in and he was if he was told oh, i think there's a seat back there i think if there's not there's a place you can stand back there or you can squat over here on the floor that would that would be acceptable and he'd go in and he would accept that as his position he, that was his position he was poor that's what he expected to happen and then when the rich came in and they were in these shiny garments and they had gold rings and they had it was expected in the culture that they would be honored, that they would be revered a little bit. And the chief priests and the scribes loved the chief seats, didn't they? They took the chief seats. It was those things which were given to them in honor of their position. And a rich man would walk into the assembly and they may not even know who he was yet. They may have seen him around town. They may have, but he's coming into their meeting now and they say, oh, here's a good seat right up over here. You can sit up over here. And it was culturally accepted. It's the way it was. Not in the church of Christ it was not to be that way. Not in the church of Christ was it to be that way. Oh, no, no, no. No. Here, in this place, everyone is equal. Here in this place. And we recognize that we give honor to whom honor is due, don't we? I mean, if the... I, I shouldn't use the example of the president. 
because maybe that's not a good example. But if we had, any, if we had someone come in this room of prominence that everyone in this room knew, an important individual, Mike Pence walks through the door and he wants to fellowship with us, we'd say to Mike Pence, well, go sit in the corner over there. I think there's, you can sit at, stand over there if there's room. You wouldn't do that. You'd say, oh, here's a good seat right over here. We've got a place for your wife. Sit right over here and we'd give him a place, wouldn't we? And we paid honor to whom honor is due. But I tell you what we don't do. We don't treat him any differently as a brother in Christ. Because he is our brother in Christ. He's nothing different. You understand what I mean? It's like, I was talking with James about this earlier, you know. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except among his own people. There, he has no honor at all. He doesn't have any honor when he's among his own people. And he's reminding me of something that that uh, Don Dunkerton once said to, to Scott. He said, you know, you know, outside of this place, I'm somebody. But in the little meeting at Kenilworth, he's nobody. He's just Don. And I was sharing with James. Before he shared that, I was sharing that the same thing is true with me. You know, when I go around different places, because of who what I've done over the years, and because I'm a speaker and I go different places, and I was a missionary for all those years, all those credential kind of things. When I walk into a meeting sometimes, they pay honor to you. Except here. Because here I'm Ken. Here I'm Kenny. I'm I'm just a part of the fellowship. And this is where I feel the most comfortable. Because of that very thing. I can attest to what it is like in this scenario because I saw it played out over and over again in my years in the Philippines. I saw this same scenario played out over and over again in the Philippines. As you, as you are all aware, um, we spent most of our time in the Philippines working among the urban poor. So the assemblies and churches that we were working with were very poor people. When someone who was wealthier came into those poor assemblies, sometimes the people could practically trip over themselves trying to, trying to make friends with them, trying to be good to them, trying to make nice to them because they knew they had substance, they knew they had wealth, and there was an ulterior motive in the back of the mind. Maybe I can get some help. We had a brother, Maynard Halili. He used to go to the, the main assembly, the assembly that Cyril Brooks started back in 1920s, in the 1920s, who, who started out as a very poor individual with a poor, in a poor family. Over the years, he built up a business and he became very, very wealthy, not only by Philippine standards, but by American standards. He was a multimillionaire, owned several planes, owned a helicopter. He had homes in different places in the world, but he was still in that assembly. And eventually, Maynard had to leave that assembly. Why? Because people were always hitting him up for money. Always looking for him to give this, give that. And Maynard was a very giving person. He loved to help people if he could. But it became a place where he felt uncomfortable anymore. And then we're seeing it from the other side of the coin now, aren't we? I saw that from the other side of the coin. When I would go into it, when I started in the work in Kogale, when I would come into Kogale those first times, I was an American coming into a very poor assembly of believers 
who saw me as being very wealthy. And by their standards, perhaps I was. We weren't. But by their standards, I certainly was. And it took months and it took years to get them to finally treat me as simply their brother in Christ. Because you did not want them to become dependent upon you as an individual, but to become dependent upon the Lord, their Savior, to meet their needs. And you know that we did all we could to try and help them. We did all we could as the Lord led to try and help them. But we did not want to create rice Christians who came only when they were getting something. We want a change to take place in their lives. So they look to the Lord. They look to the Lord to meet their needs. And we had to do that by a whole lot of different things, a whole lot of different ways we had to do that to bring that, that, that standard to an equal footing. One thing we had to do was we had to learn their language. And in learning the language, you learn the culture. And in learning the language and the culture, we began to understand that we would start to use honorific titles and honorific names when we spoke to those who were older than us in the assembly. So they began to see that they didn't have to honor us. We were honoring them as the culture demanded. And it takes time. It takes time. We know what it's like. They would always be coming to us, always be coming to the, to, coming to the more wealthy, to be ninongs and ninangs, to be those who were godfathers and godmothers of their children when they were born. Because somehow they have more money and when we have need, they will be helping. Instead of just the true spiritual help they need. So I've seen these scenarios played out on both sides. I know what it's like to fight against that kind of thinking. So from the other side of the coin, I understand what it's like. I understand what it's like for a wealthier man to come into a place and just want to be accepted and not be accepted the way he wants to be. I'll give you one more example, then we'll move on. Any of you have ever heard of Manny Pacquiao? Manny Pacquiao is a famous boxer. He's won so many titles and he was... He was like the Philippine hero for years and still is. National hero. Tremendous boxer. Well, he was a drunkard and an alcoholic and a womanizer for years, and he came to know Christ as his Savior through a Bible study. And there was a genuine conversion in the man's life. He loved the Lord. Now, Manny began trying to go to fellowship somewhere to have fellowship with the Lord's people. Can you imagine... He, went to, he began going to Christ Commission Fellowship, which is a very large group of true, born-again, lovely believers in the Manila area. Everywhere he went, mobs of people crowded around him. He couldn't sit in the building without people taking selfies and flashing cameras at him. And, and it was like, for him, it was so hard. Finally, the pastor of the, of the group said, listen, no longer are you to take a picture of him. No longer are you to crowd around him like that. No longer. Let the man come. Let the man sit. Let the man worship. Treat him as your brother like you would the one next to you. 
Manny started sneaking in after all the, after when the song services started. Started trying to sneak out by the, before it end, the meeting ended. But after a few weeks, the people of the assembly began to just treat him as Manny, my brother in Christ. And that's what he desired. That's what he desired. So we looked at it from the other side. What it's like for this rich man who comes in. But in the, in the illustration that is given to, to us here, it is of a rich man who comes in and it's as if he is expecting peripheral treatment, which was culturally acceptable in that day. Culturally acceptable in that day. And let me remind you of something else. Because this may be not spoken of too often, and I've got to watch my time. But this is probably not spoken of too often. You know, missionaries, such as people like myself, missionaries have to be very careful of these things as well. Do you know that? Do you realize that? It's very easy to fall into the temptation of meeting rich people who are interested in what you're doing and really pay far more attention to them than you do to others because you think they can benefit you. I know it's true. But Joyce and I have learned over the years, over the many years, and there are lessons to be learned. Because the rich person gives you a, a, a small gift and you immediately respond to them. Because you say, there's, there's a vast resource there. And then maybe someone poor sends you a gift. And, well, you know, when I get around to it. But we have found, it has been our experience over the year, that the poor give far more than the rich. The poor give far more than the rich. We've had folks that we would see over and over giving to us, over and over supplying our needs, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. We had some that gave to us every single month, little bits, every single month. And when we met them for the first time, and they said to us, we've been praying for you every day. We get up and we pray for you. And I saw where they came from and where they lived. It was humbling. It was humbling. And the lesson is learned again. You look to the Lord. You look to the Lord. And you don't look upon a person's ability, the person's clothing, the person's wealth. Whether he's rich or poor, you don't look to that. You look to the Lord. He is the one who will supply the need always. And he can use whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Because then he gets the glory. He gets the glory. Uh, where am I now? Yeah. So here comes this rich man into the assembly. And he's treated differently than the poor man. And we realize this is not at all the character 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you've been looking into the mirror and you've been seeing the Word and being taught the Word and taught about the Lord Jesus and what He is like and you read through the Gospels and see how He acted and how He interacted with people, we see very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ was not a respecter of persons. He's sitting in the temple one day and he's watching all of the rich come by with their gold coins playing the trumpet before them. Remember? And that trumpet has this idea. There used to be these pots that had a narrow top and it would go down and get expanded at the bottom so that when you put coins in, it was easy to drop them in, but you couldn't put your hand down there and get them out. They had to be turned over and dumped out. But that was called sounding the trumpet because when you dropped your coins in, it would go, ching, 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 make a noise that it was going down. And he's sitting there, and there they are. They love to sound the trumpet. And they're ding, dropping all their gold coins in, and he's watching them go by, and they're dropping their coins in, and dropping their coins in. And are they doing what is right? Yeah. Are they giving to the work of the Lord? Yeah. Then he sees this poor little woman come along, and she drops in her two little mites on top of all those gold coins. And the Lord says, there's a woman who gave all that she had. She's the one that's blessed. She's the one that's blessed. He calls rich Zacchaeus out of the tree and he goes home. He lets a prostitute who was formerly a prostitute, who was formerly an unclean woman, come in now that she's come to know him and come behind weeping and anointing his feet and washing his feet and, and wiping him with the hairs of her head. He cares about the rich. He cares about the poor. But not many rich, not many noble, not many enter in, not many believe. Like the poor. Like the poor. It's been our experience as well over the years in the Philippines that the poor respond to the Gospel in greater desire and greater fervency than those who have much. It's absolutely true. doesn't mean that the rich don't respond because oftentimes they will as well. But the poor, going into those little neighborhoods I went into with little shacks of houses on dirt floors, poor people inside, and they saw me coming, and I shared the gospel in Bible studies and whatever, which is why I never, I never tried to get convince somebody to receive the Lord the first time I met them, because they'd be happy to do so, because they knew that's what I wanted them to say, and perhaps there would be benefit for them if they did. It was over the course of weeks of sharing the gospel with them and seeing the Lord by the Spirit change their lives. The change took place. It's the Lord. He has those who are His. And it didn't matter. If they had nothing of this world, I told you the story, and I'll, I'll tell it one more time, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to run out of time, but it's all right. Of little Tia Elizabeth. Tia Elizabeth, she was an old woman even when I met her back in the 80s. She had a little shack down in the little squatter area where we used to go for studies. She had this little shack 
when it would rain, her thatched roof would leak. When it would rain, a little stream of water would run through her mud floor in the middle of her room, and she'd sit up on her little, her little bamboo split bed, and she'd sit up there. And I can remember oftentimes coming down, and as I'm getting close to that house, I hear a voice, and it's Tia Elizabeth's voice, and she's singing praises to her God who loved her and saved her. The gospel changes people. The gospel changes us. And in that change, it causes us to see people as they are. We we no longer see a skin color. We no longer see a different race. We no longer see a poor or a rich. We no longer see a lesbian or a homosexual, we see a man and woman who need Christ. And we ought not to discriminate. Now, there can be discrimination when people come in and want to be in fellowship in the assembly. That's a different thing. And we understand that. That's a different thing. Because the Scripture discriminates in some of those issues. But as far as sharing the Gospel with someone, It shouldn't matter what we see on the external. God looks on the heart. We need to be men and women who look beyond this and see the need. And see the need. And not discriminate. And not discriminate. We're talking about the sharing of the gospel. And I want to be clear that I, I don't mean that you accept everyone into fellowship. Because if they have sinful lifestyles, those sinful lifestyles need to be changed. But it can only be changed by the gospel of Christ. And it can only be changed by the Spirit of God who changes the lives. It won't be changed by you ignoring them. And preferring not to go close to them. It comes when Jesus Christ comes into the life and changes them. You remember... That there were examples in the New Testament of discrimination. You remember in chapter 6 of Acts, the Hellenistic Jews, those which were Jewish widows who, who were under the Greek influence, so they were more influenced by Greek culture, they were being overlooked in the daily distribution to the widows. And, they, and they were, they, someone complained for them. What's going on? The, the Jerusalem Jews, the ones who are not Hellenistic, but have stayed this way, they're more, they're more uh, orthodox in what they, they believed, and now they've come to know Christ, and, and now they're getting the distributions that were coming in to help them, and these are not. And so what, it, what was the decision of the elders? Well, too bad, they're different. No, it was, we've got to correct that, and we've got to correct it now. Set up a group of men and make sure the distribution is evenly distributed. When Cornelius wanted to hear the gospel, and Peter was given that vision of a of a sheet that came down from heaven. You remember the whole story. We don't have time to unpack it right now, but you remember the story. He went and he went into a Gentile's home, which was forbidden for Jews to do, because the Spirit of God had led him to do so. 
And he said, I see that God now is no respecter of persons. He doesn't respect anyone. He loves all. And the Gospel is available to all. And so we see that in the church, something radically different was happening. Something radically different was happening. The cultural norms of what was accepted in the synagogues, the cultural norms of what was being accepted in in all the different places of business and whatever, the cultural norms would not be accepted here. Here, in Christ, we are all one. And we will not make the distinctions. We will not make the distinctions. That's what he's telling us here, isn't it? I'm glad to be a part of the body of Christ. Where there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all one. We're all one. You like that? Because he even accepts Italians. (laughs) It's a good thing in this area, isn't it? (laughs) He loves us all. And He pays no favorites. We are to be those who are saved by His matchless grace, who have not shown this, have not shown this kind of favoritism, but have shown mercy. As He showed mercy to us all. And we should be those who are quick to demonstrate the same. We are all, we were all poor and in need of a Savior. We were all destitute without Him. Now as those who have been redeemed from that condition, we are to love your neighbors as yourself and fulfill the royal law, the golden rule, if you will. To love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do so, you've done well. If we've learned to do so, we've done well. We've done well. But if you've not learned to do so, and we still harbor grudges within us, we still have favoritisms within us, and we still have prejudices within us, then we have not learned the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're all somewhere along the road. (laughs) We're all somewhere along the road. And may we be those who are carefully looking into the law that brings freedom. Carefully looking into the law that brings freedom. And if we have have in our hearts a prejudice, if we have in our hearts a favoritism, even against others who are of different denominations, who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, we become lawbreakers. Because we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And he says, even if you just break that part of, even though it's not part of the Ten Commandments, it certainly is a part of it, isn't it? (laughs) Because we are told there to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then we know that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. You fulfill the law when you do such. If you break one part, you're guilty of all, he told us. We have been set free. My brothers and sisters, we've been set free. We no longer carry it. We ought no longer to carry these prejudices with us. We've been set free. 
You have been set free. Do not use your freedom as a cloak to do evil. But do right. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord when you share the gospel. Do not be picky and choosy with whom you share. Do not look upon the color of their skin. Do not look upon their accent. Do do not look upon their infirmity. Do not look upon who they are on the outside. God still sees a soul that needs Him. May the Lord add His blessing to His Word this morning. Father, we give You thanks. I know we covered just so very little of what all this means. We've only scratched the surface of what all of this means. There are so many different areas in which we can be tempted to pay, pay favorites, play favorites with, with others, even within the assembly of your people. Help us, Lord. Even though we have friends of our own and people that we hang out with always, help us not to ostracize others. Help us, Father, to make everyone feel as though they are part of this wonderful body called your church. Oh, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you praise in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.